welcome back to Say What Needs Saying. Today, we're interviewing Dr. Tom Kunzelman, who is a professor of chemistry and dean of the School of Natural Sciences at Spring Arbor University. Tom is also an associate editor of the Chemical Education Exchange, and he regularly publishes in the Journal of Chemical Education. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Zach. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to have you on. Just so the listeners are aware, we first were introduced at ComSciCon, which is a workshop on communicating science effectively. And you gave a talk during one of the breakout sessions on navigating difficult conversations. And I figured that is exactly what we're trying to do here uh, on Say What Needs Saying. And I thought it would just be absolutely helpful if we were to have you on the show to talk about these things a little bit. I have something to offer and something to learn as well. I'm hoping to learn from you, Zach. A lot of pressure. Here's hoping. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So you you touched on two important aspects of navigating difficult discussions and two, I guess, traits that are important in that process and that are necessary in order for you to have that kind of conversation. Um, You touched on skepticism and openness. I was hoping you could kind of just define those two and, you know, describe kind of what you mean by those two traits and and how they play into navigating difficult conversations. Sure. These two traits that you mentioned, uh, skepticism and openness, I borrowed it from reading the book, The Scientific Attitude by Lee McIntyre. And I think if I remember correctly, he borrowed it from uh, Isaac Asimov. And Asimov is talking about, you know, what entails good scientific thinking. And, you know, really, when I think about it, I think this type of thinking that they would describe for scientific thinking, I just think it's good thinking in general. And if it becomes sort of a practice, I've, I've been finding that it actually fosters healthier communication with, you know, the conversations that I have with people with whom I, with whom I disagree. I think it's, it's beautiful because it's a little more general than just than just scientific thinking. It actually spills over into relationships, <laughs> as crazy as that sounds. Mm-hmm. So let's get to it. These ideas, you know, one, to do good science, uh, one should be open to all ideas. And, and at first, that's going to sound a little crazy. But really, ultimately, we want to get to the truth as best as we can. And mm-hmm. so we should display, and this is difficult, we should display remarkable willingness to consider ideas. And I want to I say it just a little bit differently to enhance, I suppose, the difficulty in doing this. We want to show a remarkable willingness to consider ideas that are different from our own and sort of trying to get away from this, this thinking that our ideas are our own, but rather they're just ideas that we should be exploring. I mean, you know, scientists are curious. We enjoy learning about the world. And it's really difficult to learn about the world without that curiousness and that openness. And I think you probably recognize, you know, I'm a science educator. Uh, lots, lots of us are. And we recognize that our students come to us with a lot of misconceptions. And if those students hang on to those misconceptions, it stands in the way of them learning the deeper truths in science. And if that's happening to our students, of course it's happening to us. And so trying, almost becoming an attitude or a practice of being open to, you know, all ideas, all ideas are on the table, is a good thing, as long as it's tempered. And here's, here's the other part of this. The other part of this is that it's, it's tempered with skepticism. And skepticism, you know, scientists, I think, tend to be pretty good at this. This other part is you only accept ideas, you know, you consider them all but you really only accept the ideas and give serious consideration to and make them part of your thinking, those ideas that are going to best stand up to analysis. That requires teamwork. And you, you, know, you reject the ideas that don't. These two ideas hand in hand are, are powerful. They're powerful in conversations. And, I, and there was a third thing, I don't know if you want me to, to touch on that, that the book doesn't mention, but I've thought a lot about this because it's very powerful. You know, I guess I see this as as an axis, a a double axis system with skeptical, we'll say, high on the y-axis and gullible, low on the y-axis in the negative region. And on the x-axis, you can run from open to closed. Mm -hmm. We want to be in the skeptical open quadrant. Right. But I think there needs to be a third axis. 
And that third axis is, are you fair or biased? And what that means is, are you operating in the skeptical open region equally with all ideas? And the example I tend to give is, okay, let's pretend that I'm a Democrat, okay? Mm -hmm. We're going to depend I'm I'm a Democrat. Am I as open to the ideas of Republicans as I am to the ideas of who I see myself part of as the Democrats? Am I as skeptical toward the ideas of the Democratic Party as I am towards the ideas of the Republican Party? And when I think when you couch it in those terms, especially today in the United States, a lot of people find themselves, you know, either Republican or Democrat right now. It's not everybody, but a lot of us do. And so I think couching it in those terms, I think, crystallizes the difficulty of doing this. Or let's say you're, you know, you're a member of a particular religion. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's say you happen to be a Christian. If I was going to apply this, you know, this is dangerous stuff, but if I'm going to apply this thinking to religious ideas, if I'm a Christian, I need to be as skeptical of my own Christian religion as I am, say, of the claims of Islam. And I need to be as open to the ideas of Islam as I am to Christianity. And, you know, take your pick. Take, take the thing that you kind of identify with. I, you know, I'll ask you, what, you know, what, I, maybe I shouldn't make it so personal, but, you know, just do that exercise. Choose something that you sort of identify with and then ask myself, am I as skeptical towards the idea of myself as I am to those of my opponents? Am I as open to the ideas of my opponents as I am to the ideas of myself? And I fail at this all the time, all the time. But even though I fail, I try to keep it in mind, especially when I'm in conversations with those with whom I disagree. Right. I think that maybe in undergrad, when I was just starting to get involved in the political sphere and things, I, you know, I would have considered myself a little more more liberal, or, or I guess you know, maybe not a Democrat. I, I think I was still a registered Republican, but I was more liberal. And then as I became more open to the, the quote-unquote other side's ideas, um, I found myself shifting a little bit. And so now I, I identify more as a conservative, but you know, it's, it's tough. And I find myself failing at it all the time as well. I think sure. you know, everyone probably does. Yeah. Um, you touched on a little bit that you think scientists are typically pretty good at skepticism, but maybe not so much on openness. And I think I would agree um, that, you know, we're, we're trained to be skeptical. We're trained to be discerning and, you know, experimental in nature and, and all of that. What do you think about the average person, just the average non-scientist or, you know, the average person in, in society? Do you think that this is biased towards one or the other in, in which they fail at more often? Or do you think that it's kind of a person by person issue? You know, do you think that they are better at being skeptical than being open or vice versa? You know, I'll go ahead and just lump myself in with everybody else. I mean, I'm a trained scientist, but I'm not immune from from any of this. And so I would say it depends for me on the issue. There are some issues that I, I think I can operate in a very skeptical and open manner. And then there's going to be some other issues, <laughs> which I'm not so good at, uh, you know, so I think it depends on person to person. I think we scientists, we do, you know, at least we know the tools on how to skeptically analyze things. You know, we take classes on how to do this appropriately. We, we take statistics for, for the very reason of being able to apply very quantitative analytical methods for accepting ideas, which is powerful. But, you know, we're really trained on quite simple ideas. You know, it's easy to show statistical significance on, you know, the mass of a proton or, or whatever. Right. You know, that's, you just got protons or, okay, maybe you got quarks if you want to go a little lower. But, you know, how are you going to apply this type of rigorous analytical reasoning to a discussion on institutional racism, whether it exists or not? Mm-hmm. How, how do you do that? You know, you're in a very complicated, complex world. And so while we scientists do have an analytical background to bring to these conversations and it can be informative and helpful, I think we also need to recognize that there are some questions that are inherently complex and naughty and messy, and there may be no answers to certain questions that, that exist in society. It depends on what assumptions you start with. Absolutely. And so moving then to bias, which is the third axis that you had described, 
Um, one thing that early on in the podcast, I, I believe it was even the first episode, I introduced two terms to our listeners, and I'll, in, I'll reintroduce them here just in case anyone hasn't listened to the first episode or if they've forgotten. Um, but the two terms that we introduced to our listeners were cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias. And so confirmation bias is more or less what it sounds like. You, know, you expect something to happen, and therefore when, or, or you expect something to be true more broadly, and then when it does happen or is true, you find that that is because of the reasons that you had already believed it to be beforehand. The example we had given before was wearing your lucky socks before a game, and then, and then your team wins. And so confirmation bias would be that, well, it's because I wore my lucky socks that they won, even though that doesn't necessarily play any role in it. And it has no bearing on the, on the outcome of the game. But because you believe so strongly that that is the truth, that that is factual and that is the case in reality, that you then are more likely to believe that even after, even after someone presents you with another option, another possibility. Yeah. So I think that definitely plays into openness. And then cognitive dissonance is basically that you hold contradictory beliefs or ideas or values than what you are presented with. And when you are presented with something that differs from your beliefs or values or, or truths that you hold, then it just reinforces the beliefs that you had previously and it makes it that much harder to accept the truths that you're presented with now, or maybe not truths, but you know the the ideas or the beliefs or or values. And I think those play into a lot that we see nowadays. You know, whether it's politics or religion or science. And I think it's it's important to include bias on that on that scale. I, I appreciate that you added that one in. How do you see that happening in, well, I guess first in the scientific community, how prominent do you see that as an issue? Um, and then just shifting then to general conversation and, and the public again, how do you see these manifesting in, in real life, right? You know, the people holding their biases so close to heart that they're unwilling to be open, you know, are there any quote unquote big ones that you see prop up more often than others? Well, sure. I think you can probably tell me a few. <laughs> you yeah. know, I'm sure, sure all of us can. Boy, how prominent is bias? It's, it's in all of us. Man, I can't, I can't answer that question very well for the public. Yeah, I can only really answer it for myself. I mean, I have my opinions about what I, you know, thinks out there. I mean, we can talk about, you know, the rejection of uh, anthropogenic climate change. Uh, mm -hmm. We can talk about the rejection of the theory of evolution. This is an old stuff. You know, over time, you know, scientific ideas are, are complicated and it does take a long time to kind of get it. I mean, I've been thinking about climate change and trying to learn about that since like 2014 and I'm still learning new stuff. And, you know, to imagine that there are some folks who, you know, read what's up with that and have never picked up a textbook on, on climate science, you know, let alone try to understand the ideas of, say, Michael Mann, who's been studying this for 30 years. And to think that they, you know, have the relevant information or understanding of what Michael Mann has studied, and yet they feel confident in rejecting his claims because they've read what's up with that for, you know, a year or two, that's problematic. It's very problematic. And yet, on the other hand, you know, when I'm discussing with people who are rejecting climate change, if I dismiss their ideas, that's demonstrating that I have a closed mind. And so when I hear arguments, you know, against anthropogenic climate change, even though I've heard it for the, the 15th time, I treat that particular interaction as though I've heard that argument for the first time. I treat it openly. I, I just act as if I've never heard it before. Okay, when I'm doing my best, I do this. I don't always do this, but when I'm doing my best, I, I do. And then I try to skeptically analyze it. You don't just be open. You also take the time as it, it takes a lot of time. You know, these, these ideas or these memes that you see that pop up on the surface, they make a lot of sense. 
and then you dig in and you skeptically analyze it, you think about it, and what's beautiful about doing this actually is you learn a ton of science along the way. I actually enjoy that part. You know, get your blood pressure up sometimes when you hear certain ideas that, that run, because you know, hey, you, you and I, we, we love science, I assume. Right. <laughs> I assume you want to be a champion for science, you know? Yeah. And so there it is though. You ask the question, how prominent is bias? Well, the bias that's prominent in me is I want to be a spokesperson and a champion for science, and therefore I'm prone to overstate the case or overestimate the validity of what's published in the peer-reviewed scientific literature. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think anything's much better, but nevertheless, <laughs> I have to be careful. I have to be careful because you and I both know that there's a lot of mistakes in the scientific literature and we've probably contributed to it. Right. <laughs> you know, hopefully we contributed more of what's good in there, but you right. know, there's, there's some mistakes in there as well. Yeah, definitely. And so, you know, that brings me to a point that I wanted to touch on is this idea that I call the scientist superiority complex. And we had discussed it a little bit over email. But I think that, you know, numerous things play into this concept, right? And so the way that I define the scientist superiority complex, it's the phenomenon that scientists and, and other professionals more or less assume intellectual superiority, especially when dealing with non-scientists or non-experts. And I think in part, it's played into a lot by those things that you just described, right? Over overestimating the impact of the research that you're reading or the credibility of the research that you're reading, maybe having that bias towards science. And just because a scientist says something, you now take it more or less as fact. And I found, at least in my anecdotal experience, that it leads to a lot more conflict with some of these difficult conversations. And it leads to a lot less constructive conversation. And, you know, things like climate change, things like anti-vaxxers and things, you know, the more scientific concepts that are hotly debated, more or less, where a scientist will be discussing with, let's say, a climate denier, and the climate denier will express their views that climate change doesn't happen or isn't real, and the scientist will more or less write that person off immediately as either ignorant or stupid or what have you. And I think that recently this has evidenced itself during the COVID pandemic. At least the impact of it has evidenced itself with the, with the distrust of scientific experts, with the distrust of the medical and scientific community and their findings. And so I think that I, I agree with you that these things are necessary for a constructive and open conversation. How do you think that scientists specifically, or just experts in general, can get over this presumption of superiority and this feeling of knowing better? You know, you said yourself that you pretend that you're hearing an argument for the first time. I think that's definitely helpful, and that would definitely lead to a little bit less of that presumption of knowing better. What other things can you think of that, that maybe scientists could be doing better in their communication styles or in their conversations with non-scientists that could lead to less of these non-constructive conversations about these topics? Yeah, boy, I hope you have some suggestions <laughs> as well. It's difficult. It's messy. It's tough. You fail at it. But some, some things that I've found helpful, the one thing that you mentioned or that, that I guess I said before was treating honest questions as though it's the first time that you've heard that particular argument. I also think that, you know, while there are mistakes in the, in the peer-reviewed literature, if you look through the peer-reviewed literature and there is a common red thread that runs through several years <laughs> of history, that you mention this to people and you also mention to them that you're no, I'm no expert in climate science. Now, I've spent a lot of time reading the climate science literature a lot of time, but I'm not an expert in it. Stating that up front is helpful. The other thing is stating to the person how you will change your mind is also helpful. So I say, look, the way we scientists are trained to accept evidence that we ourselves are not doing active research in ourselves, and of course, 
trying to explain to people the difference between literature and Google searching and research is important in that conversation. But then saying, look, if I'm not an expert in this field, the way you will get me to believe or think something is to show me a large number of studies published that back up your argument. That's the way it's done. And so it frees you actually, once you've, once you've made your case, you present them the, the arguments in the peer reviewed literature. I like to post sentences from abstracts that anyone can read and understand, and then provide the link if they wanna, if they wanna read further. Providing several of those are often helpful for a particular argument. And then saying, if you have anything that shows that what I've posted here is wrong and you can find sources in the peer-reviewed literature, I would love to see it. And being honest and genuine and saying, I would love to see it. Because if they do find it and you do read something, then you thank them. Oh, thank you. I have not seen this before. I'll definitely read it. And it's okay to say, wow, you've shown me an article that I've been unaware of. I appreciate it. You know, it's okay to also say, I know there's 30 other articles that say the opposite. Right. But, this, but this particular article gives me something to think about. Thank you. And also, you know, it's also helpful to, to help people to understand that, say, a paper published in Nature or Science is probably better than one in PLOS 1. And trying to help people navigate, you know, impact factor and, and those types of things are, are important as well. But yeah. you also have to beware of, of the trolls, and we all know they're there, and you know them when you see them. I've had many people tell me, don't feed the trolls, and I think that's good advice. Sometimes it's better just to let a troll respond. Oftentimes, there's really no need to respond. You just let their words speak for themselves. I found that the, I, so I agree with the, the things that you had brought up, the strategies that you've talked about. I've also found that not for information gathering, but for, well, I guess it's still information gathering, but I found it helpful even to read the sources that, you know, often the, the complaint is that when you're talking with someone who isn't using peer-reviewed research as, as their sources and their, their evidence, you know, that they'll send you an article from some website that it's very clearly not factual or, or what have you. I found it helpful too to even to read those, to peruse those, you know, when when I'm presented with that as quote unquote evidence of their stance, not so much to convince myself of their position or to be convinced of their position, but it helps to understand where this person is coming from. And Absolutely. I've helped, you know, it, it helps to understand what is forming their beliefs, right? Alex Jones was one example that had come up in a conversation I was having the other day, you know, Alex Jones is conspiratorial in nature a lot of times. He is very, you know, snake oil salesman a lot of times. And he, he's not necessarily the best source for legitimate information. That sure. said, a lot of people listen to him. A lot right. of people listen to him. They get their information from him. And that is where they form their beliefs. So if you want to understand those beliefs that they hold, the best way I've found to do that is to or at least one of the best ways that I found to do that is to go to the source, is to listen to these other perspectives and, and get a feel for what they believe and what they're preaching and, and saying, because then, you know, it puts it in context. It, it gives you some, some context clues as to why they may believe that climate change isn't real, or they may believe that vaccines are harmful or, or what have you. So I think that that's another strategy that I, I have found helpful in the past is that now you have to obviously be wary when you're diving into these other sources, you know, don't fall down a rabbit hole in YouTube videos that then you're an expert on flat earth theories because you've, sure. you've listened to everything. But, you know, it's important to, to get every, I guess, angle you can. I think that I think you've, you've definitely hit on something. It is something that I've I've spent time doing to varying its extents. There are some times I take a break from my mental health. <laughs> I mean, just, yep. Right? I mean, there's times I'm like, man, I can't do this anymore. Uh, right. But yeah, there's other times you're absolutely right. You're like, oh man, I've never heard that argument before. And then it gives you, you know, it gives you motivation to dig into the literature mm -hmm. and see, wow, how would I answer that? Yeah, right. I, I hear you. I think that's, I think that's a great idea. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's valuable. It's not, you know, obviously, like you said, you can't spend all day every day doing it, but, you know, checking in here and there, it's, it gives you some perspective on what 
the, you know, I don't want to say the other side because that sounds divisive, but, you know, the, the other individuals are thinking. It comes to this concept, and I guess I want to get your take on it, but a while back I had posted, I don't remember, I don't remember what it was. I had posted something on Facebook and received some criticism from someone of the opposite political leaning as what I had posted. And what had come out basically in the in the mess of Facebook comments that wound up ensuing from, from this person was that they were under the assumption that I believed all sources of information have value. And the way that I responded to this was that, well, I do. I do on some level. I think that every source of information you can get has value in some way, if nothing else than to, like I just said, get a better idea of what people receiving that information are receiving and then what they could be thinking after getting the information. So what, I guess, what's your take on that? You know, the idea that all information has value on some level, do you think that there's anything that you can more or less write off as not having value, not being helpful or in discussion or just in general, you know, or do you think that all information on some level does hold some inherent value to it? Wow. That's it. Yeah, it's a big one. Zach, I'm not sure I could answer that question without a large amount of thinking. You've pushed me. You've pushed me. I'm trying to. I'm trying to be open to to what you just said. Yeah, I think. I think at some level you're right. And let me let me just reframe it a little bit into a way that I can discuss a little more comfortably. Okay. okay? This idea of we'll just call it academic freedom. Mm -hmm. You know, like I said, all ideas are on the table. If I am to truly believe that then I would say, yes, that, that all ideas at, at some extent do have some value. Now, this brings up the question is, how do we decide which ideas to give platform? Right. And that's, that's a more difficult question. So I think, I think philosophically, I'm going to agree with you that all ideas have, have value, if, if nothing else, just for the intellectual exercise of thinking about it and seeing its merits and its faults and deciding if that idea falls or, or stands or that information falls or stands. But I think you and I also both have to recognize the reality, the practical nature of what is, that there are some ideas out there that people are drawn to that are false. Right. And that does present a danger to society in some way. And so I will post, <laughs> I guess I'll make the claim, that we ought to also consider this idea that there are ideas that are dangerous. There are false ideas that are dangerous. And we, and we have to, I don't wanna say we have to, I'll make the claim, we need to consider the danger of giving certain ideas too much credence. I, you know, it, this is a mess. I don't, you know, I don't feel like I'm making any sense talking right now because, you know, I value free expression of ideas. I value freedom of speech. I want all ideas on the table, but we also have, you know, I don't know what percent, but we've got a large proportion of the population that is very attracted to the ideas of, say, uh, QAnon. Right. That's not healthy for our for our country. And, there, you know, there's probably some people listening to this who think I'm, you know, evil for saying that. But I don't think it's a reasonable, rational way to move this country forward to accept and promote. I guess there's a difference between considering ideas and accepting and promoting them. Why don't you jump in here, man? I'm on the weeds. Yeah. I don't, I'm not sure where this is going, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this mess. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that being open to ideas is one thing, but yeah, p- putting them on a pedestal, you know, allowing them to have a platform and then and then accepting as truth are two different stories. I agree that, you know, there are plenty of very harmful ideas that gain a lot of traction partially because of their harmful nature, you know, partially because of their conspiratorial or shocking nature of them. You know, it, it plays into then that, that anti-academic, anti-expert perspective a lot of times, you know, where it's an idea that runs counter to what is factual and what is proven and, or not proven, but, you know, substantiated. You know, I, I find that those are probably the toughest conversations to have because of the nature of the idea that you're dealing with, right? Because you simultaneously have to be open 
and careful, for lack of a better word, because, you know, the openness, I agree. I, I also value freedom of expression and speech and all of those and thought. And so you do want to be open in those situations, but it's a balancing game, right? It's a balancing game of being open enough to where you don't come across as a closed-minded bigot or unaccepting of outside ideas, but not so open that you then open the door to this idea being spread out to other people or substantiating the idea in this person's mind. Sure. And, and I think that's where the skeptical axis comes in, of course. Right. You, you always have to have the two. Mm -hmm. And I think part of being skeptical is, I, I haven't mentioned this, but in the book, it mentions the book by Lee McIntyre, The Scientific Attitude. It mentions this visceral honesty, that you probe your ideas with this visceral honesty. And so you don't just remain in your, I'll, I'll call it, my, I don't want to just remain in my you know, scientific promotion cult. Mm -hmm. I want to get outside of that. I want to interact with people who think differently than me so I can understand where they're coming from so I can see where maybe, you know, I'm pushing the science a little too far. And that, that you know, guess what? That's happened to me in, during the pandemic. You know, the, the pandemic, right. I think, has been something that has humbled a lot of us who are in the business of, of science promotion. We've been this, these champions for science. And guess what? We're involved in a really messy process of trying to figure out what the heck's going on and how we should respond to it. And, uh, and that's been good for me. I mean, you know, yeah. I've, I've got opinions on various things, but I do think that, you know, just with the masking issue, we were told at first, you know, not, not to wear them. And now that the general consensus seems to be that, that we should be wearing them. And I saw a lot of people very upset and they continue to be upset with the mixed messages that we're getting. And we scientists and the public in general have to remember that we've got to hold these ideas loosely because because they're going to change. I mean, just think of how much we know more now, you know, at the end of September mm -hmm. than we than we did in March. Yeah, uh, we know a lot more now. And we're, you know, another half year from now, we're, we're going to know a lot more. We're going to find a lot of mistakes that we've done. Do you think that we as scientists have, I, I don't want to say obligation, but do you find it part of our jobs, our responsibilities to kind of instill a little more of the skepticism and openness in in some of these discussions and some of these ideas in you know i think a lot of the the issues over the flippant nature of scientists during the covid pandemic is largely not entirely but largely because of non-scientists not understanding the scientific process very well and understanding that science is kind of ever changing and as we get new data models get adjusted and you know, we, we have a better sense of the big picture. Do you think that plays into what scientists' roles in these conversations are? Do you think that we have some kind of responsibility to help explain those aspects of our job to the average person? Uh, I do. You're in school right now? You're in graduate school? Yes. Yeah, I am. Yeah. And so you're getting your PhD. What are you getting your PhD in? Neuroscience. And neuroscience. And, mm -hmm. and who's paying for that? <laughs> um, right now, I'm on a T32 grant um, from the NIH, but so that, and but that, my... that comes from taxpayer dollars, right? Yep. Yeah. You see where I'm going with this, right? Yeah, I think we do have an obligation. The people have paid it forward, and they may not like what we have to say, but I do think that people have paid their taxes to provide you with an education, and there's wonderful things you're going to do. And I would hope that part of what you choose to do is to pay it back to the public in some way. You may be able to just do that through research. You may be able to. And that would be completely fine with me. But in my position, I work at a private institution. And I feel, you know, I happen to live in the same community where I grew up. And I feel a very strong compulsion and, yes, even a responsibility to try to use my training to help the people in my community navigate the messy waters of the pandemic. It's like teaching an entirely separate class from everything else that I'm already teaching. You know, I actually find meaning in doing so. I find joy in it. I find frustration in it. I find it takes a lot of work, but I also am learning a lot and I love to learn. So, uh, and yeah, I, I feel I'm giving back to the people who gave to me so that I could, you know, went to University of Michigan, got my PhD there and people paid for me, you know? So, mm -hmm. For me, it, it works really well, especially in the job that I have. I would hope that 
I guess I would hope that more college faculty or teachers in general, science teachers in general, people who have a little more extra free time on their hands would use their training to help the public navigate these issues that we're going to be facing because it's only going to get more complex. You know, a society that doesn't understand the technology that they're using, yeah, come on. <laughs> I don't think I need to finish a sentence. Yeah. Let's do what we can. I think that that's been part of the issue during this pandemic. I think that I've appreciated um, a lot of Fauci's approach, uh, Dr. Fauci, his approach to explaining to the public, you know, the scientific process and, and models and things of that nature. I don't think he's been perfect at it, but, you know, he's tried. Um, sure. But I think that across the board, that is one area where not just those scientists, but scientists in general struggle, you know, and we're not as good about communicating these things to the general public. And then that leads to things like, you know, doubting the recommendations on masks because, well, they used to be something else and now they're this and you were lying to us and all of that. It's like, because we're unable to adequately communicate why the recommendations have changed. You brought up a good point in that, you know, there is this two-tiered approach. You know, you can be a, an outstanding research scientist and just, you know, blow the doors off of all sorts of findings and be very fluent in communicating with your peers, mm -hmm. it's a very different thing to communicate to the public. And it takes, it takes a lot, a lot of practice. And, uh, you know, fortunately for me, I was actually trained as a, as a high school teacher and taught middle school for seven years okay. before I went back to school. So, you know, I've got a lot of practice talking to a seventh grader. And a lot of what I do when I'm talking to people is I'm talking to a middle schooler. I mean, I don't, I don't mean to say that in a, in a, like a condescending way, but I do think, you know, you, you kind of forget how much, how much training you have and how much you know. And so trying to always assess and, and try to explain things in a way that, well, I think that's what they say, right? Don't they say that newspapers are written at like a sixth grade level? Yeah, something like and that. So really, I think it might be kind of appropriate to you know, explain science to people at roughly a seventh grade level. And, you know, if people ask for more, you give it to them. And it approach, you know, it doesn't work all the time, but the approach, it tends to work. I agree. I want to shift gears slightly. Um, we've talked a lot about scientific communication and scientists communicating with others and, and communicating with scientists. How do you think these ideas can then be applied to other aspects of conversation, you know, with, with scientific communication, it's fairly, I don't want to say cut and dry, because obviously there's still both skepticism and openness that plays and bias that play into those conversations. But at the end of the day, you know, one stance will have some more credible or more numerous publications. One will be more strongly substantiated. And so it can be a more factual and intellectual conversation back and forth, you know, on the, on the subject matter. How do you think this, these ideas of openness, skepticism, and bias, you know, we touched on it a little bit earlier, but how do you think they play into conversations with values underlying the subject matter, with faith or religion underlying the subject matter, where you can't necessarily point someone to a nature article or, you know, point them to different publications and research on the matter. I mean, in some instances, obviously you can, you know, there is research sure. in, in plenty of these different areas, but a lot of it, you know, is more, I don't want to say opinion-based, but, you know, opinion or, or values-based to where sure. it's a difference in prioritization or it's a difference in fundamental beliefs or faith. You know, how do you apply these concepts to conversations that fall outside of the scientific scope? Well, that's, you know, this is out of my wheelhouse. Uh, it's, <laughs> <laughs> seriously, it's hard enough. It, it is hard enough in uh, scientific conversations to do this, really. And then that's, every once in a while, I'll navigate into political discussions. Mm -hmm. But I, I, tend not to, I tend not to linger there too long because I just don't feel the same you get to the point where I feel like people are arguing about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Because if you have somebody approaching a, a political discussion where the individual is king, the individual rights and responsibilities and freedoms should basically be pretty close to primary. And you have, you know, you have that person having a discussion 
with somebody who thinks that the government needs to be involved in fostering the good of society as a whole, there's not going to be a whole lot of common ground that you're going to find. And I think maybe uncovering those values in those political discussions can be helpful. But, you know, people tend not to go that deep. They tend not to show their cards and say, hey, look, I'm a libertarian. You're not going to, this is, this is where I'm at. Everything's cut and dried for libertarians. I mean, you know, it, it, it really is for the most part. Mm-hmm. And so you know where they're going to land. So, yeah, if a libertarian's having a, a, a conversation with a democratic socialist, they're probably not going to get real far. Uh, And I think the same is often true in discussions of religion, but I do think there are some, boy, there really are some common basic truths that we all share. For the most part, I think people are interested in the good of humanity and trying to maximize the potential of human beings to live healthy and productive lives. And that's a conversation that I think all faiths and even people who don't have faith can sort of meet on and maybe then discuss that and the different approaches for reaching that. And I do think that's ultimately what goes on. And I think maybe we forget that, don't we? That a libertarian and a democratic socialist, I bet if you pushed them, they're both trying to figure out the best way to maximize human potential and productivity and living the good life. What do you think? I absolutely agree. I think that, you know, it's, I agree that it's harder with these conversations um, than strictly scientific ones, but I agree. I think that in order to have a truly productive conversation with these topics, you know, whether it's politics, religion, etc., I genuinely think that in order to have a truly constructive conversation, there has to be a basal level of mutual respect first and whereas a scientific conversation right you can jump in with someone that you have no idea who they are and just kind of discuss more on an intellectual level and you know comparing facts and publications and things you know you still have to respect each other sure but it can boil down to be a little more black and white than values-based or religion or faith-based conversations but i found that my my co-host brandon he had said something during one of our episodes that basically in order to have these kinds of conversations the respect that you have for the other person needs to fill in the gaps when they say something that you either don't understand or just fundamentally don't agree with, because then that level of respect will then make it clear that this is someone that I respect. This is someone who I hold in high regard. And so it goes back to your point of their motives, their underlying beliefs and reason for holding the views that they have chances are they're not nefarious. Chances are they're not malevolent and evil motives as much as both sides of, well, all sides tend to demonize the other as having nefarious and evil motives. That's generally not the case. And I think that if you have that level of respect for the other person, I think it's a lot easier to come to that realization and say, you know what, I disagree with that, but I get where you're coming from and I could see how given your perspective and given your beliefs, you could think that that will be the best solution. And then, you know, I disagree and this is why. But yeah, I think that that basal level of respect is so much more important in these kinds of conversations because without it, you fall into the trap of thinking that you are talking with a bad person. You're talking with someone who isn't worth your respect or isn't worth civility. And so therefore, they must want to get rid of public funded healthcare because they want people to die or they want to make public funded healthcare because they want, you know, some, whatever the argument is, you know, it always can boil down to a very negative perception of it. If that respect is there, I think the conversation is a lot easier to have. It's something that I've tried to encourage both through the podcast and through other things. Civility is really the key to a lot of these discussions. Now, it's not obviously, you know, like everything, there's a line and like everything, there are certain things that are unacceptable in conversation and unacceptable to then continue a civil conversation with someone because there are certain points where you may get a certain level of hate or discrimination or just negative elements of the conversation, for lack of a better term, where, you know, maybe it's not worth it anymore. 
but yeah, I think that 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 underlying respect and civility is really the key for those kinds of conversations. I think you bring up a, a good point with the mutual respect thing. I think that provides a guide for when you're dealing with a troll. Right. And keeping your eyes open, you know, always offering the other respect. But if, if you know, if you're continually seeing the, seeing the pushback in a disrespectful way, it's probably a good idea to end the conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. When you're dealing with the trolls and, you know, the, the people who are just antagonistic, sometimes tough to figure out where that line is, but I think that it's important to make the distinction right between yeah. always having a respectful civil conversation and knowing when to draw the line. And you know, unfortunately, I've crossed that line as the aggressor mm -hmm. one, at least one too many times. Sure. I think yeah. we all have. And I think that's the other important aspect in these conversations is realizing that chances are we've probably all been the aggressor at some point yeah. in our as, as long as you've had these kinds of conversations on some kind of regular basis or even a couple times chances are everyone has probably been the aggressor and been the the disrespectful person in the conversation you know yeah. and it's it's tough to admit that and i think that a lot of times that plays into stuff like the scientist superiority complex, right? And, and superiority complexes in general, yeah. is that you're forgetting that. You forget that, oh, I used to be the non-scientist. I used to be yeah. the person who didn't have this training, this education, and I would have maybe held some of these same beliefs. Maybe I shouldn't treat this person as intellectually inferior, but try to help educate them. Sure. Or for non-scientific issues, you know, Maybe I have been the person who has talked more assertively or aggressively or disrespectfully when having a conversation about religion or politics or all of these things. So yeah, I think that plays into the mutual respect is you can't assume that you have the moral high ground, right. you know, at really at any point. And it's even harder on the internet where you're, you're yes. typing back and forth. You know, the amount of time I take when I'm involved in these discussions, reading it and thinking of the way it sounds, not just factually, but even sometimes more importantly, how it comes across. Because, you know, when you're, when you're opposing someone's view, <laughs> you know, how you, how you approach that in a way that's collegial is very difficult in a public forum where you're just writing back and forth to each other. Mm -hmm. And that, that, you know, I spend, I spend at least as much time on that as I do presenting the science. Yeah, it's important to keep in mind not just what you're saying, but how you're saying it. Yeah. You know, certain things can come across very differently, both to different people and, you know, depending on how you write it, right? You know, not only what are you writing and how does it come across, but how can it come across to people with these different biases, people with these differing levels of skepticism and openness. And there's only so much accommodation you can make, right? At a certain point, you have to say what needs saying. But on some level, you do need to keep that in mind when you're, when you're discussing these things. Yes. How do you see this playing into the, the post-pandemic world, right? Where once we're past COVID-19, once we're kind of back to quote-unquote normal on some level, interacting with each other again, I mean, we're seeing a, at least my perception is that we're seeing a much stronger and much larger divide in the country. And, you know, people are very much shifting into their respective camps, whether that be politically or scientifically or what have you. And I feel like after this pandemic will be probably the most important time for these kinds of conversations to be had. I think that after all of this is said and done, we'll need to refresh that basal level of respect that we have for one another. And it's an important thing to talk about, but it's obviously not something that we really know until it happens what to do. But I guess, what do you foresee, you know, when people start going back to, to quote unquote normal, do you think that this is going to get worse? Do you think that people are going to be worse at having these kinds of conversations? Or do you think there's some way we can kind of salvage it? You know, I, I have no idea. I will say on the science end that there's nothing new under the sun. It's right. always been the case that, you know, there's always been science deniers to some extent. And I, that, you know, that's not going to change. And what that mm -hmm. population is or what percentage of the population that is, I don't know. I, you know, I can't. Yeah. I, I guess the, what do they have, the, the research polls or the, is it Barna does those questions? You can kind of gauge what's going on if you mm -hmm. 
as you look on the, the Pew Research polls or whatever. Right. You know, in terms of the division of the country, it's my hope that there are a lot more people angry with the extremes than the extremes are with each other. Right. Let me just put it that way. That's my hope. I don't know. I don't know what the breakdown is. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of us somewhere in the middle who are tired of, we're tired of the divide. We're tired of the United States of America being pitted against each other. There used to be this middle ground of mutual respect. And uh, it's, again, it's my hope that there's enough of us. There's a, there's a critical mass of us. A really savvy, charismatic politician is going to sweep us all off our feet. <laughs> That's a pie-in-the-sky wish, isn't it? You know it's true. That's totally yeah. – what do you think? I mean, you know, I – Yeah. I, that's my yeah. hope. That's my right. hope. I, you know, we need an Abraham Lincoln. That's what yep. we need. And I don't see one right now. Maybe you do, I, but I, I just don't see one right now. Not yet, at least, unfortunately. <laughs> so you kind of think the same sort of thing. I mean, what, what percentage do you think are kind of these folks in the middle who, man, come on, guys. This is, you know, we're a team here. Right. We're a team. I, what, what do you think? I have to believe it's at least 50%. At least, you know, I have to believe the majority is somewhere in the middle. You know, whether that's a majority of 51% or 75, I'm, I guess I'm not entirely sure, but, but it's absolutely the majority, and I want to say large majority of people that really fall somewhere in the middle. Now, again, obviously, you oscillate, you swing, you know, a little sure, left or a sure. little right, and, you sure. know, but, but yeah, I, I, I like the way you phrased it, that the middle is more angry at the extremes than the extremes are angry at each other. I think that that's something that could be kind of a unifying, a unifying uh, trait that, that kind of brings people together a little bit. And hopefully, hopefully we see something along those lines happen. Yeah, let's hope so. Well, I think that is as good a place as any to, to call it a day. Tom, thank you again for joining us today and for giving your perspective on these super important issues. Before we go, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to plug anything that you wanted to um, as a thank you for joining us on the show. You know, if you had something that you wanted to have our listeners be more aware of or, or something that you wanted to, to talk about, uh, I would just give you the opportunity to do that now. Wow. Uh, just thank you. You know, thanks for this opportunity that I got to talk with you. And uh, folks, let's just figure out a way to, to move forward together. Absolutely. I couldn't have put it better myself. All right. Well, thank you again. Uh, this was Dr. Tom Kunzelman from Spring Arbor University. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Zach. All right. Take care. Yep. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, please remember to like, subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Say What Needs and on Instagram and Facebook at Say What Needs Saying for live updates and sound bites from our actual podcast. Don't forget to continue the discussion. Thank you for listening. Thanks.